to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 4. Verses 14 through 37. And the last time we talked about the uh, temptations, right? When Not the, the group, but the temptations of Christ. And what did they mean, right? Why did the devil try to tempt Jesus? What was his goal? What was the outcome? Uh, how did Jesus thwart those temptations? And what does each of those three temptations mean to us? And how do we overcome, right? Because Jesus came to not only die for our sins and show us the way to eternity, to heaven, to be with with God, but also to teach us how to live here. Because this is a fallen creation, right? He's going to remake everything physically. He came the first time to redeem his creation spiritually, right? He came to save souls, which was more important than the physical creation. Because in the end, when everything is done... What's left is God and people, and he loves people, right? So his desire is for, the Bible says, for everyone to be saved, and that's why Jesus came. So today we're going to look at accept him or reject him, and pretty much everyone has to make that choice before they step into eternity. Do we accept him, his message, what he taught, or do we reject him? And we're going to see this in three parts. We'll jump in. Starting in verse 14, it says, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So one out of three is acceptance throughout Galilee. Now, the Bible tells us that Jesus was the Lagos, or the Word. God the Father, you could say, physically spoke through God the Son. In a way that we could understand on the earth, he did it through uh, fully God. God the Son, you know, was joined with human flesh, fully God, fully man. So he had a mouth and vocal cords, and he taught and he spoke. But also he used the methods that we use today, right, to write down the information, the teachings, so that for thousands of years we could still follow him and still understand him and read about his teachings. How refreshing is that? And it's really refreshing because you turn on the TV at any given day and you look at the celebrity culture or the political culture and uh, it's vacuous, it's empty. But when Jesus spoke, he spoke with power. And even 2,000 years later, when we read about his teachings, we're still inspired and we're just reading black and white, right? Black letters on a page. But there's so much power behind those words. It says that he taught in the synagogues, yes, He was coming to speak to the Gentiles to save them as well, uh, but he had to start getting a proper foundation with the Jews, which he did to the Jew first and then the Gentile. And if we look at, if we go through, put the map up and look at the region back then, and we look at the region today, there are countries, right, that still, if we could put up the map, um, speak about this area. Now, if we look at, this is basically modern-day Israel, but over here, this line kind of separates Israel from what today is known as Lebanon. 
the Lebanese still understand their southern region as Galilee. The Israelites understand that their northern region is what they would, what we would consider southern Galilee in biblical times. Here's Nazareth. This is the, the place in question that Jesus was teaching. Cana, he did miracles here. He did miracles everywhere. And this is the Sea of Galilee. Now, if we take the understanding that Israel today, and you know the borders have changed over the years, is roughly the size of New Jersey, which is helpful for us that we're, if we live in New Jersey. It basically is long and skinny like New Jersey. You could almost, if I could make a parallel, is that you can look at Galilee sort of like a county in New Jersey with Nazareth being one of the townships. Now, the Sea of Galilee today is still called the Sea of Galilee. It's also been called the Lake of Gennesaret, the Lake of Kinneroth, the, the sea of Ti- Lake of Tiberias. Uh, it's been many different ways. But if you were to take a trip to Israel today, you'd be astounded on how 2,000 years later, listen, it's largely a Jewish nation, with, with some exceptions, that they still have these sites, right? They still have signs. They still have things describing each of the landmarks um, because history is history, There's a sort of a culture in the United States that sort of wants to whitewash Christianity, wants to become post-Christian. You hear a lot of this with some of these college professors. It's easy for them to say living in the United States, but if you lived in Israel, which is a largely Jewish nation, you would see that all of these landmarks are still there. The names are still there. And that's the beautiful thing. If you're searching for the truth, you can find the truth. As a matter of fact, there's a new uh, city of Nazareth in Israel today, right next to the old city. So even the people who made these new cities, they did this in uh, Jericho and other places as well. Whether they were Muslim, Christian, or Jewish, they preserved a lot of these historic towns and left them alone So Nazareth is sort of a a tourist attraction, but there's a new Nazareth built next to it, which is more modern and updated. So thankfully, the people overseas want to preserve the historicity of all of this, but what it does is it just shows us, it proves to us that the Bible stories are true. You can prove the truth, you can find the truth if you're looking for it in geography, archaeology, history, and paleography, along with the natural sciences. It's pretty powerful stuff. We continue. Verse 16 says, So he came to Nazareth. Now, there's a different experience. He's mostly in Galilee, and I showed you the towns in Galilee and what we would look at sort of as a county. But now he goes specifically to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, which is found in the Old Testament. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. So now he's quoting from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, or more specifically, more accurately, he closed the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. What's he going to say? 
And he, Jesus, began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, As surely I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you, truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout the land. But none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Then all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And this is interesting how the, the fickleness of the audience, when you hear what you, this, this happens today, when you hear what you want to hear, you like the speaker. When you hear something you don't like to hear, you don't like the speaker. And what's changed? And they rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went on his way. He went on his way. So two out of three is rejection at Nazareth. So acceptance through Galilee, but rejection at Nazareth. And this is unique to the Gospel of Luke. When we look at verses 14 and 15, we can see that Jesus is polarizing, which is not always a bad thing. Now, in our culture, polarization, I don't like it. I don't like what I see. And as Christians, we should try to bring people together. Unfortunately, the polarization that we see in our culture is just self-destructive, polarizing people by race, by gender, by ethnicity, by vaccination status, by political affiliation, all these dumb things that people are fighting with each other against that really have no bearing on eternity. What Jesus did was he was getting them to choose sides, not based on what I just said, what we do today, But he was trying to get them to decide whether they were going to follow the way of righteousness or salvation or the way of eternal separation from God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he was trying to get them, and there could have been polarization in that culture, right? Think if I'm a history buff. You know, who's for the Romans? Who hates the Romans? Who's for the religious establishment? Who's against them? He didn't do that. He was polarizing them based on whether they wanted to follow him and know the way to to heaven or not. So that was that polarization that we can see. But there was a custom where the readings were circulated. Now, it's my job to do the background, to look and see what were the customs, what was the history, what went on in the uh, synagogues. And basically, he was handed, I believe he was handed, well, it says he was handed the Isaiah scroll. Now, I don't think that Jesus chose this. You see, when we read a Bible, there's pages, there's chapter delineations, you can put sticky pads and find your favorite book and flip to it, your favorite scripture. But in those days, they didn't have sort of that bonded uh, reading material. They had scrolls. So he would be given the Isaiah scroll And what they would do is they would probably, each time they got together, they would go through a different portion of it. And they already had that Isaiah scroll opened up to Isaiah 61, and they said to Jesus, here, read this today, which is a coincidence, but not. And I'll I'll cover that. That the Isaiah scroll, which was written 700 years prior to Jesus coming, 
prior to God the Son coming to the earth. And I'll, I'll prove that to you because if you go into paleography, and you can look this up on your own, you can look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. Isaiah 61's in there. You can look at the Septuagint. Uh, Isaiah 61 is in there. I did my research on that. So basically, these were established in some ways, the Septuagint, 300 years before Jesus actually came to the earth. So um, you can either say it's a coincidence or you can say the hand of God. Let me get even deeper than that. Jesus is reading something written 700 years before about him before he had ever come to the earth. So what does Isaiah 61 say? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I'm going to answer it. It basically talks about God the Father anointing God the Son regarding his first coming. There were two comings. So the first coming, now check this out. You might run into somebody who says, um, I believe that the Messiah is going to come through this family, or David Koresh, cult leader, thought he was the Messiah. It's very easy to debunk that because there's three time-sensitive prophecies that I'm aware of, one in Daniel 9, one in Genesis 49, and one in Haggai 2, all three written by three different people that speak about the exact time that Christ would come to the earth. That, that time has come, and it's past. Nobody can claim that today if you read the entire Bible. The Bible also says, and Jesus said to his followers, he wanted to encourage them, that he had to be crucified, he had to die for their sins and our sins, but that he would return after he rose again, ascended into heaven, that he would come back. So we don't know when that's going to be, and, and again, a lot of cult teachings tell you I remember uh, many few years back, 2011, Jesus is returning. And I would be like, I would tell my friends, don't listen to this guy. He's whacked because Jesus said nobody's going to know. He didn't change his mind. Only God knows. So you have to be able to dif- differentiate truth from false teaching. So this is, this, if you've walked in here today and you are not a believer in Jesus, you actually happen to walk into one of the more deeper and this is just where we are, we are uh, in chronological order. So what do these things mean? It means that... They're dis- so Jesus is reading something written 700 years ago describing the Messiah's mandate upon arrival to earth, which is now a fallen creation. So humanity brought sin into the world, brought death and suffering and all those kind of things. But Jesus came in to save souls, to start with that, and later redeemed the... Uh, creation physically. Now, when I read these, we're going to see applications spiritually, emotionally, and also physically. So let's jump in. A, he said that his job, right, was he was anointed or commissioned to preach the gospel to the poor. So that even the folks, you know, America has a, a large middle class. But if you study history, also today in many countries, there is no middle class. There is the poor, And then there's the aristocracy, there's the elites, unfortunately. We are fortunate that we do have a middle class and we do have opportunity to make it in this culture, which is a good thing. But Jesus was preaching to probably the majority of the people who didn't have extra this, extra that, maybe couldn't regularly eat meat in their diets, didn't have a large home. Um, But he was basically saying, you know what, This, this poverty is a temporary condition. The afterlife, when you go to be in God's kingdom, no comparison. This is just temporary, right? And he also said, and again, wealthy people, God loves them too. Many wealthy people get saved. 
But Jesus was very clear that because of wealth, some people rely on their wealth and they don't rely on God because their wealth cushions them so they don't see a need for God. And that can be a deception stepping into eternity. Um, I can tell you that as a police officer, I would go into a lot of homes of a lot of people who perished, who passed, and the garages were filled with cars and toys and you know, the jewelry box was filled with gold and silver and none of the stuff went to be with the person when they died. Can't take it with you. So understanding the gift and the treasure of eternal life is so, even the pharaohs, right? You go into these tombs, expensive stuff. In a sick way, they even put their servants in there, in the tombs, you know, when the pharaoh died. But none of them went with the pharaohs. Every person stands before God alone. However, if you have Jesus on your side, he's already paid that penalty for sin. So preaching the gospel to the poor is huge. I'm gonna, there's going to be some overlap in here. Uh, B, to heal the brokenhearted, right? Uh, life was hard in the first century if you weren't part of the aristocracy. It was a difficult life. If you read history, you'll see that. So the brokenhearted, is, it's an emotional condition, right? We can be... We can have psychological issues from a a broken home, a broken past, uh, things that have harmed us. And sometimes we carry these burdens with us through life. But Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted and to change how we think, how we process information, how we get better. Right? He wants to be a part of that process. To see, to preach delivery to the captives and set at liberty those who are oppressed. You know, sin makes us captives or enslaved to ourselves. I'll just share with, with you a little bit about my life, and I've shared about my past and my college years and in my 20s and my conversion experience, but you know, on the outside, I, listen, I came from a broken home. Um, I've said this a million times. I didn't know how to process problems, work through issues, so I would reach for the bottle. It was alcohol, right? Haven't touched that in a long time, but... That was my way of fixing things, you know, things that I didn't want to deal with. On the outside, I worked three jobs. I bought my first house. It was an estate sale in the 20s. I was in my 20s, early 20s. I bought my first home, worked my butt off to buy it, right? Um, I had the the job that I wanted, didn't have any connections, but I, I was going to be number one. I was going to get through all those tests, and I did. They had to hire me, right? So if you looked at me from the outside, you'd say, well, that's a successful young man. I was working out, I was in good shape, um, I had everything I wanted, but I was still empty inside. And I still, when, when trauma, when I dealt with things, I never dealt with it properly. So when I f- experienced a conversion experience with Jesus Christ, I didn't need the bottle anymore. And it wasn't like I'm, oh, I'm pining away, I, I really wish I had a drink, I, I don't. And I want to share that with some, any of you, if, you're, if you have questions about that, I'd love to talk to you. And then when I, when I let go of the, the alcohol as a crutch, then I started developing anxiety and panic attacks. I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm going from the frying pan into the fire here. Um, that was a whole thing because all of the junk that I suppressed now started to come out. And I was like, Lord, I don't get this. I come to you, but he was cleaning me out. He was cleaning the gunk out of the inside. And it was amazing, folks. And I, I was brokenhearted, but I was too tough to tell anybody I was brokenhearted. 
I was dysfunctional, but I wasn't going to tell anybody I was dysfunctional because I had a job where you were supposed to be perfect. So all these things were kept inside. But you know what? The Lord delivered me. So here's a real-life experience right here. I'm giving you my testimony. Amen? So he can do this for anybody, and, and I was captive. I was captive to my sin. One more this, one more that, one more weekend. And this went on for years. I, kept, I might as well just bang my head against the wall and wonder if something's going to change. It was only Christ that was able to change it. So he wants to help us spiritually. He wants to give us eternal life. He also wants to help us emotionally. Emotionally. And that's why some people in the church are afraid to talk about that. They'll say, oh, I, I broke my knee. I need prayers. You know, I'm praying for my relative who doesn't know Jesus. But we, and I don't know why this is. The psychological world, the emotional world is taboo. We don't talk about it. People are suffering in this culture. The, according to the CDC, I heard this, I always vet my sources. I don't just parrot and repeat stuff. I am very interested in the, in the biological sciences and, you know, how the brain works and all that kind of neat stuff. But I actually went back to the CDC and I looked it up. The number one cause of death for 18-year-olds through 40-year-olds, it's tied. The number one tied cause is suicide. Right? And we do. We go through this world. We get our education. We, we get our career. And we put on a facade. We're bullet, I was bulletproof. You weren't getting inside. You weren't going to know anything about who I was inside. But we suffer inside. Listen, if you're suffering, talk to somebody. It's so important. This is such an awesome scripture. If you, don't, if you miss the fact that God wants to minister to your soul and the deepest corners of the closets of your heart, you're missing something. You're missing something. When we can get our emotional life and we can get our, our life back functionality-wise, we can achieve so much more. We can have so much more joy and happiness and peace, even in the midst of trials. So this is heavy stuff here. Um, so, hey, look, he, uh, he, he, he helped, he healed. Uh, we know that. We know that, listen, a big part of Jesus' ministry, everywhere he went, <laughs> it said that they would bring sick people to him. <laughs> like they would carry their friends to see Jesus. I hear he heals people. You know, he touches their, their eyes and they can see. He touches their body and they could walk. Where do we get into some of these miracles? We're going to have so much fun with it. It's just so, so beautiful. Just imagining the person who suffered for so long and then the Lord did this for them. So there's a lot here. D, to recover the sight of the blind. We read this literally. Recovering the sight of the blind. 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul tells us that, that when we don't know Christ, and I'm going to speak for myself, the early days, dysfunction, broken home, broken family, depression. There's sort of like a spiritual cataracts, right? They're, they're not actual cataracts, but we don't see things for what they are. When we look in the mirror, we don't see ourselves accurately either. We're deceived. But the Bible tells us that when we understand we have a relationship with Christ, those, it's like, you know, the cataracts kind of go away, and you can actually see clearly, and I've experienced this. The first several years I was a Christian, I look back, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I feel like I've lived two lives. This is amazing. Thank you, Lord. I, and then I would say, I've said it from the pulpit, I wish I got saved sooner. I would have saved myself a lot more heartache in life. 
but it is what it is. Uh, E, the last part of this, is to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, this references in the Jewish culture what was called the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, debts were canceled, families that had to sell land due to poverty, uh, the land was returned to them, and indentured servants were set free. Why did God do this? Because he wanted to prevent the caste system and the class system that's in America and all the other countries of the world. You know, if we just follow what the scripture says, it makes perfect sense. God, he, he mandated this by law. So at the very least, the Jewish people, when they had their own sovereign nation, had to practice this or they were violating God's law. So it's kind of neat that every 50 years, like if I was an oppressive landowner and I bought off judges and politicians, and it happens today, and I'm able to get the court cases favorably disposed towards me, and you know your family, you know I'm taking advantage of your family, and it was your grandfather, your father, now you. At the 50th year mark, by law, I would have to give that family back under penalty of law, the land, set the servants free. I had to do all that, which is pretty awesome. We don't practice that in the world today, but we should, right? Look, look, look out at the world. Um, the world is largely controlled by, you know, powerful people that oppress people at the bottom. But that's not God's way. Now, you might say, well, why does the world look like this? God put it out there, but he also gave us free will to follow it or not. But here's, here's the thing. This is even better, is that you have to apply this spiritually, right? Think about Jesus Christ. The acceptable year of the Lord, the, the Messiah came to cancel all the debts, the, the sin debts. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, anyone, would, oh, my past, you don't know my past, doesn't matter. Whosoever would believe on him would not perish but have eternal life. So this is sort of the year of Jubilee when Jesus came to die for the sins of humanity. Because, you know, let me just say this. We, we watch TV, we can watch some shows, and, you know, the serial killer, we want to see them get justice. The worst of the worst is somebody who harms a child. They need to face justice. And you know what? One day that's going to happen. In a, in a remarkable way when it comes to the Lord. But all sin has to be judged. Otherwise, God's not a fair God. That includes my sin. Oh, well, I'm not comfortable with that because I'm happy when the bad guy gets his, but I'm, I'm, I didn't never hurt anybody. And that's not a good standard to follow. Not a good standard at all. God has to judge all sin. That's why Christ died, to pay the penalty for sin. Small sin, big sin, a few sins, a lot of sins, it doesn't matter. That's why, you know, people say, why do I need Jesus? There's your answer. There's your answer. So, uh, why does he stop mid-verse? If you actually read Isaiah 61, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, it continues, and the day of vengeance of our God. This is literally in the middle of the verse. Jesus didn't finish it. He closes the scroll and says, give it back to the attendant, this has been fulfilled in your presence today. What does that mean? 
Because what Jesus was doing, the day of vengeance of our God is a future occurrence where all sin now publicly gets judged unless you're in Christ. And please, make no mistake, I was uh, witnessing to the, the guy who was fixing the copier at the church yesterday. We had a, it was a great conversation. Uh, so I guess things happen, right? But use them as a good opportunity. I said, it doesn't matter if you're Muslim, Hindu, Jewish, Catholic, Lutheran, Calvary Chapel. Jesus came to die for everyone's sin. You have to put him on that higher level. You can still retain your ethnicity, your language, your culture. That's fine. But as far as your soul goes, Jesus died for your sins. So that's important to understand. And um, Jesus was basically coming to the earth in the first century between two of the prophesied comings. One later on, which we don't know the day or the hour, but um, the one that he came when he came to the earth, he was reading in between his two comings. Pretty wild stuff. Verse 22, they marveled at his gracious words. Now, it wasn't like Jesus came in and said, oh, I like your tie, your shoes are very nice. That's not what gracious means. I like to go into the old languages, right? The word in Greek is charis, which means that his words, when Jesus spoke, there was a divine influence on his words. You, you wonder why, like, you know, the, some guy's fishing and Jesus walks by and has a conversation. The guy drops his net and he follows Jesus. The tax collector who was making money hand over fist, he just stops what he's doing and follows you. Why? Because he's the Lagos. He's the word of God. So, could you imagine being there and actually walking with him for those three-plus years? All the things he said, they were blown away by his words. So divine influence on his words. However, the anger of some came after what he said in verses 23 through 27. And basically, uh, without going into great detail, during the days of the prophet Elijah, right, in the Old Testament, there were God had to punish the arrogance and the unbelief of the people in spite of their privilege. They had privilege. They, they knew the things of God. You know, most of their cultures surrounded by the festivals and the laws of God. Nobody could go through that culture and be ignorant of who God was. But some built up a, an arrogance, a haughtiness. You know, you ever, you ever meet somebody who calls themselves a Christian and you feel like they look down on you? Well, it's not supposed to be like that. So it happens today. And Jesus rebuked that. He said, that's wrong. But God had mercy, according to these verses, on the spiritually hungry Gentiles who just hungered for the things of God. And that carried through through Jesus' day, and you could imagine how furious it made uh, many, including the religious system, who was in bed with the Roman government. And this is from Jewish sources that are not Christian at all. You read Josephus Flavius. He talks about the corruption the historical corruption. And that's the worst thing. You know, it's one thing when your politicians are corrupt, but when your religious leaders are corrupt, what do you do? What do you do? That's why Jesus left us his teachings, so that there's some purity in that. So, um, so continuing on, verse 23, they say to him, do hear what you did in Capernaum. In other words, actually, the first few verses of the Gospel of John, Jesus turns the water into wine. He does a lot of those neat things in the early days. And the people here were hard-hearted. And they were basically saying, why don't you show us the same miracles because we heard about them. You know, word travels fast about you. 
Um, why don't you do some of those same miracles here and we'll believe? But you know what? Jesus, God the Son, God the Father, he's not here to do magic tricks. He, he ministered to the people who their hearts were right, but for the arrogant, even when he goes before Herod, and Herod has this attitude, well, I'll let you go, you know, perform for me, and I'm paraphrasing it, Jesus said not a word to him. He doesn't speak to him. And then they crucified him. Because God respects himself. He doesn't have to do tricks for people. You just, if you're honest and you, you search for him, you'll find the truth. And he said, you will say to me, you know, or a prophet is not accepted in his own country. Physician, heal thyself. Sort of the modern version of familiarity breeds contempt. I, I have to laugh on a, on a minor scale. You know, my son's 22. And um, I could, you know, my wife and I just tell him about life. And we try to coach him. And, you know, we tell him all these right things to do. And, and he'll kind of go out and do his thing. And he'll come home and say, oh, I talked to my teacher. Or I talked to one of my students. And they told me X, Y, and Z. And, like, we, we've been telling you that for years, you know. <laughs> so, you know, so you, you could be real close to somebody. And, and, well, they want to hear from somebody else, <laughs> right? So Jesus experienced that. They're like, well, we heard about the miracles in Capernaum. And I don't see you doing any tricks. Do something. He's not going to do it because <laughs> he respects himself. But familiarity does breed contempt sometimes. Verse 28 through 30. So Jesus preaches this sermon. First, they like it. And remember, um, no, no group of people, even here today, is a monolith. In other words, people have different opinions, right? We, we all have free will. God made us individuals. It was the same thing back then. So there are many who were blown away by his words. We see this a lot. We see this when he deals with the crowds. But there were some who would get angry because the truth hurts. He would say things that would cut to the core of their pride, their arrogance, and um, that was a problem. So Jesus preaches this beautiful sermon, and they try to kill him. Well, that's quite a response to a sermon, isn't it? <laughs> hope that doesn't happen here. Uh, so <laughs> let me just give you a little kind of sidebar, and then we'll move on to the last few verses, is that... There's a lot of sayings that we hear in American culture, and I covered some of them last Sunday. They're colloquialisms, they're expressions. Some are true, some have merit, some don't. Um, so I, I hear this. People say to me a lot, well, Jewish people don't believe in Jesus. That's actually factually incorrect. There's actually about, about 22 dozen Jewish people I know in this church. This church isn't that big, that believe in Jesus. Uh, I actually... I've had a lot of these dumb, little, annoying surgeries, but I thank God I've had good surgeons. So my one surgeon, I'm going to be vague because I know he listens to my messages, um, and he's, he's, I really got to like him. I felt he had a good bedside manner, and I felt he cared about his patients, and really nice guy, very warm. And he always wore the, the head covering, and he's an Orthodox Jew, surgeon, right? Highly educated, I would say probably one of the best I won't say the type of surgeon he is, in New Jersey. And I start, I'm thinking, well, what the heck, I'm going for surgery. I see this guy all the time. Uh, it had to do with my throat and stuff. But, uh, so I'm starting to witness to him. And um, he's listening. He's got a lot of patients out there. I mean, I didn't take a lot of his time. I'm appreciative of that. But I give him my card. We start to talk. Every time I see him, I talk a little bit more. One time I come back, he actually told me, oh, I've been listening to you online was shocked. Fluent in Hebrew, fluent in the Old Testament. Then, of course, I had to ask, what did you think? 
He goes, I really liked it. <laughs> like, not a criticism at all, you know? So these, these ideas that we have, these sayings are just not true. In Israel, there are thousands, if not 10,000 of Jewish people, 10,000 of Jewish people that believe in Jesus. Why? He was their Messiah. The only reason we, we look at, so here it's all mathematical, right? There, if you look at how many Jewish people are in the world compared to non-Jewish, I think they make up uh, maybe 4%. Somebody could look that up for me. It's a small percentage. So when, when Christianity first came to the Jews, they were all Jewish. And then the Gentiles, the Greco-Romans, started coming in. Because there were so many more numbers, it appeared, it appeared disproportionately, of course, that Jewish people don't believe. But that's actually not true. I, see, I talk to Jewish people all the time that believe. So anyway... So my surgeon, it was, it was fun, and uh, I was, he just kept listening online, and uh, I, he had no arguments. Uh, I shared to him that Jesus was Messiah, and he seemed to agree with me. Maybe I'll say something doesn't feel good, and it's, it's been a few years. Hey, brother, what's up? So what's going on, man? What's your, what do you think of Yeshua? But anyway, let's move on. So last few verses, verse 30, Jesus came for everybody. There's nobody excluded from Jesus, period. He loves everybody. He came for everybody. Verse 31, then he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching. So here's another word, astonished. He's talking, and they were astonished, for his word was with authority. Now, in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know you, who you are, the Holy One of God. Quite a conversation. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. So they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word this is, for with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So three out of three is demons are smarter than some people. Okay? It sounds funny, but it's true. What did the demon say, and what did it mean? Now, some people say to me today, first of all, I know some solid missionaries who've been doing this for decades. They don't tell stories. You know, they're not storytellers, but they have experienced demon possession. And they have, you know, in the name of Christ, cast it out. And I would tell you that in my law enforcement career, small percentage of the population, superhuman strength, they're not on drugs, and they're totally evil, and they need to be away from society. And I believe that in American culture, we're so smart, we just give people a pill. That I think some people who may be demon-possessed are being drugged. They can give them, I mean, heavy drugs to make them sleep all day. But when they wake up, they're like, they're, it's just, I've seen some crazy stuff as a police officer, I can tell you that. So nobody's going to convince me that demon possession doesn't still exist. Continuing on. All right. Here's the scenario. You have, you have Jesus. He's fully God, fully man. So I would say that God is cloaked in human flesh. It's, it's a weak 
description, but just go with it. Over here is the man who, and at times, you know, how many demons can you fit in a person? I don't know. They're from a different world, so it's not like they're squished. Well, we can't get one more guy in here. You know, it's, it doesn't work like that. There's a plurality there. They're having a discussion with God the Son. So you have the, uh, the demonic world cloaked in human flesh. Could you imagine watching this conversation? You wonder why every gospel writer, including Paul in his works, speaks about experiences they've had where they've seen these interactions. If you saw it, it would probably freak you out. You're like looking, what the heck is going, who, what are they, what's this we, you, you know, there's only one guy there. It's just me. I like to kind of pull out the flavor of the text of the scripture, not just buzz through it. But what does this mean? Here's what it means. The demons know that based on their behavior, their interactions, their rebellion against God, they know that their day is coming for judgment. We've covered this in the book of Revelation. But they don't exactly know when it is. So based on their conversation with Jesus, they're wondering why he's there. He's got a skin and a face and hair, but they're not fooled. They know that he's God the Son. Why are you here? Okay, we're really close to you. What are you going to do to us? So they know that their time is coming. They don't know when, so they're a little confused. Interesting. And they were right. Their time wasn't coming at that time, and it is still a future happening. They say, I know you, who you are, the Holy One of God. There's people today that still don't believe, won't believe, won't do the research. They'll do the research on a little, you know, lipoma that has to be removed and go to Google all day. But when it comes to their afterlife, they don't seem to be concerned. Cult leaders distort the nature of Christ, take away his deity. So, hence the expression, demons are smarter than some people. Because they knew. They knew who he was, they named who he was, and he just basically said, shut up and get out. (laughs) Pretty neat stuff, isn't it? Those at Capernaum were amazed at his words. They were astonished at his teachings, for the word was with authority. And you know what? When you share Scripture you might leave the conversation and say, I don't know what I said, but my friend felt better. I talked to them the next day and they they felt much better because you're using God's word. That's why God's word has power. Many will be amazed. So the hostility didn't come from the fallen angels. They just wanted to know because Jesus, you know, it's almost like if you're in a company and you're in your cubicle, and all of a sudden the CEO walks into your cubicle, and you're like, whoa, this was unannounced. What does this mean? Am I getting fired? So, you know, Christ is powerful. He is God the Son. And there's a confrontation, and the demons know they can't just scurry away because they, they, he already saw them. So they want to know. The hostility didn't come from them. They just wanted to know what, what's going to happen now. And we see later scriptures where they're like, did you come to throw us into the abyss? Like, what's happening here? Um, But the hostility came from humans. Hence, demons are smarter than some people. Okay, accept him or reject him. Every person on the planet must make that choice before they step into eternity. But I'll tell you this, Jesus didn't hesitate to accept you and me. And he opened his his eyes and he opened his arms wide on that cross to be crucified for our sins. And Jesus even said, nobody takes my life from me. At the snap of a finger, he could have vaporize those guards 
He had to die on the cross. And it goes back to the Old Testament. It goes back to the shedding of the blood. It goes, it goes back to a lot of things. It was legal. It was something that God had to do. It, there was an order to it. But he did it because he loves us. We're living in the time period between two of Christ's comings. And they're all prophesied in Scripture. And my question to, to you today is, do you want to be a part of the acceptable year of the Lord, that glorious year of Jubilee, or will you resist until the day of vengeance of our Lord? I know what I prefer, and I would say this as well, that read the paper, turn on the evening news. I know I often say not to do that. This world is a mess. Seriously, who's got a clue? Our country, Europe, Russia, who's got a clue? Nobody does. Nobody knows how to solve the problems that plague the human race, but Christ does. And I've recounted many, many times my uh, young adult years, my college days, Again, I thought I was on top of the world, but there was still something missing. You know, um, all I can say is this. My motives are not to say, oh, you have to come to our church, you have to give us money. That stuff's religious stuff. I don't care about that. If, you, if I never see you again, but today you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, I've done my job. The same, the same treasure I carry with me every day, I want you to carry with you too. There's no angle here. So, we don't know how much time is left. Make your choices wisely. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossroads. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org, where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.